everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host, Wired senior editor, Michael Calori. Hey, Mike. Hello. Hi. I, I don't know about you, but I'm really missing the studio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially the lighting. <laughs> well, the lighting was probably not its best feature, but, you know, the whole equipment thing and sitting in a room talking to people in real life. I miss that. Breathing the same air. We're also joined remotely this week by Wired senior writer Lily Hay Newman. Hey, Lily. Hey, sorry I'm not breathing the same air as you guys. We regret that as well. Lily is coming <laughs> to us from New York City, where um, she is, uh, I think, hanging out in some sort of closet right now, it appears, for best sound. Is that correct? Don't blow my cover, Lauren. <laughs> You would not be the first podcaster to be hanging out in a very small enclosed space surrounded by clothing and carpeting. But we really appreciate you coming on the show this week. Today, we are talking about voting. In case you haven't heard, there's a big election coming up in America. Later in the show, we're going to talk about why it's 2020 and apps and online voting systems still aren't really a thing here in the U.S. But first, we're going to talk about voting by mail, because that's the most critical thing to address this year. Due to the pandemic... A lot of people are likely going to avoid going to polling places in person. That means that votes cast by mail-in ballots are expected to be higher than ever. And that has led to an intensely political back and forth about election security, the role of the Postal Service, and public safety. So, Lily, you wrote a guide to voting by mail for Wired.com. Should we actually be concerned about voter fraud via mail-in ballots. I think the rumors of vote-by-mail's insecurity have been greatly overstated. Um, there are some things to worry about, as with any system. There's no perfect security. You know, there's always uh, considerations and extra steps you want to take and extra vigilance, all that stuff. But vote-by-mail is very secure from everything we know, from all the studies that have been done. Uh, rates of voter fraud are extremely, extremely, extremely low. And I think relevant to the recent discourse, something that's really important is that when there is a very highly publicized example of mail fraud in vote-by-mail schemes, uh, the reason it's so significant and noteworthy is because it's rare and because, crucially, it was discovered. So, you know, though you, you, you don't know what you don't know, what we do know is that when there are examples of vote-by-mail fraud that get too big or are, you know, too significant, they get caught. And then we hear about them and then they get used as examples of mail fraud. So I just think it's important to understand that cycle that plays out, that it's actually a good thing when we find out about these examples and when they're stopped. It doesn't mean that the system is totally insecure and needs to be thrown out or something. Lily, how do you explain the political frenzy around mail-in voting when, in fact, in the past, there's been evidence showing that mail-in voting doesn't really benefit one party over another? Yeah, I, you know, all I can really say is that it seems to be fully led by President Donald Trump. You know, I, I normally would not want to sort of point fingers or assign blame, but I, I just don't think that's a partisan statement. I think he is the person bringing this stuff up. 
and making these accusations. And uh, the president of the United States is obviously uh, incredibly influential and has a huge platform. So, but I, I honestly don't really hear it coming from anywhere else. You know, I, I hear it coming from President Trump and then his allies will sometimes uh, repeat some of the things he's said. But uh, yeah, that's the only explanation. I don't know. I'm curious, do you, you know, have you guys heard anything else? Because I am not hearing it from election officials, not hearing it from secretaries of state uh, or other, you know, top election officials, not hearing it from researchers. Yeah, I haven't been hearing anything either. And the the curious part about it is that when politicians do talk about um, mail-in voting being somehow insecure or somehow uh, there's, you know, the chance that your vote is going to be compromised, the thing that's missing a lot of the time, almost almost all the time, is exactly how that's done. So mm -hmm. I'm really curious if you've seen any of these scams, uh, how they're perpetrated like what happens how does a how does a vote that's mailed become lost or miscounted i think some of the examples such as you know there was uh, an incident in patterson new jersey that uh, president trump for a while was a fan of bringing up a lot of the examples there really aren't like fraudulent ballots necessarily or you know voting for someone else even or you know impersonation which is sort of the big concern a lot of the incidents that come up are like breaking the rules about how you collect the ballots so in that situation in Patterson what was suspicious was that there were hundreds of ballots all stuffed into the same uh, post box, you know, same day, things like that. And so the accusation there isn't even that the ballots aren't legitimate. It's that they were collected, like, uh, illegally by a third party. You know, we're not really supposed to go around and, like, solicit each other's ballots or, you know, sort of take it upon ourselves to collect each other's ballots. The idea is everybody's supposed to submit their own. So people should not you know, break the law and improperly uh, uh, collect ballots. But it, it's like, in terms of the actual impersonation, if you were trying to commit mail fraud, you'd really have to go box to box, like mailbox to mailbox, pull out everyone's absentee ballot on the day that it arrives, know what their signature looks like, know what their social security number looks like. And, you know, some of that information is available online. Like, for example, stolen social security numbers are available in criminal forums, things like that. But how are you going to predict whose ballot you're going to be able to steal? You know, it's just when you actually start thinking about the logistics of carrying out such a scam, it's it's pretty tough. The best idea I can think of is compromising uh, the ballots at the source, like where they're printed or, you know, when they're still in the hands of election officials. But the challenge with that, the reason it's that's not just a shoe in either, is that election officials are professionals who are specifically trained in physical security, in addition to, you know, digital security and uh, tabulation and all the other components of their job. Physical security and ballot security are uh, core to their profession. So this isn't just like, you know, Lily got assigned to take care of the ballots when they come from the printer <laughs> or something. This is like professional people who have a plan for how to keep the that those, you know, stacks of ballots secure until they get uh, stuffed into envelopes and mailed out. So 
you know, there's no point in the chain where it would be obvious or really simple to just make this happen in the way that the president has alleged. And we all know, Lily, that you, I mean, you're super sketchy. You should not be giving control yeah. of the ballots. I mean, you not only cover hackers, but you are a secret hacker yourself. Right. I mean, so. I've got all the ballots in the closet with me right now. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems as though we're, we're saying that you should feel pretty secure about voting via mail-in ballot. So, Lily, if someone wants to request a mail-in ballot, where do they go and what do they do? I think the crucial thing is just understanding that your vote will be counted. It will move through the mail and, you know, be secure. And and if something were to happen, it would be discovered. That's the, the crucial thing. It's like, yes, it's not impossible that bad things could happen, but there are checks in place and it will be rectified. So I, I think those, yeah, both sides of that, like you're saying. Um, to, to vote by mail, to find out how to do it in your state, highly recommend the wired.com guide uh, that breaks it down state by state. Uh, I spent many hours, it was not an army of interns, it was just me, <laughs> collating all, you know, all the information for all the different states. Uh, and basically, there's two crucial parts. You need to be registered to vote. There are some states that allow you to register on election day, same day that you're going to vote, uh, which is great for states that offer it, but it's a minority of states, so I definitely would not rely on that. I uh, highly, highly suggest right now, pause the podcast where you are and go uh, register to vote. And then the second step is in states that aren't going to send you an absentee ballot automatically or you know send you a vote by mail ballot if you're in a state that's all vote by mail anyway uh, if you're not going to get that you need to request a ballot uh, and again you know you can use our breakdown uh, or you know just google to find your state's uh, process for uh, requesting your ballot and then right as soon as you get it mail it back in right away immediately pause whatever podcast you're listening to when you get it Hope it's the Gadget Lab podcast and mail it back in. And also, if you voted in previous elections, you're probably already registered. So actually, it's not even as many steps as it sounds. One more quick question before we go to a break. Um, lots of people are moving around right now, despite the fact that we're living through a pandemic. According to a new report from the Pew Research Center, one in five adults in the U.S. say that they've changed residence um, or know someone who did during this time. And so I'm wondering what voting means for people who are moving around. Like, is there a difference between requesting an absentee ballot if you want to make sure that you're able to vote for your previous state if you move states? Um, should you just, should you move and re-register quickly? How does that actually work? Right. I, that's a great question. And I think, uh, you know, important to start thinking now for your own case, because it's going to, there are a few factors that are would determine how you deal with that. And especially because of state by state laws, uh, I can't give one blanket answer. But uh, one thing I would sort of think about is there are states that vote by mail in every election. 
But all the other states that are doing vote by mail are doing expanded absentee by mail for the purpose of this election. Most of those states are saying you don't need an excuse because your excuse is the pandemic, you know, and that's just kind of universal. Uh, My best piece of advice would be to maybe if you're in that situation, take the pandemic out of it for a second and just think about what what's actually happening? Am I going to be, quote unquote, traveling during the election? Is that my issue? Or am, did I move? Is that my issue? You know, and then sort of figure it out from there. If you moved, you know, there hopefully there's time to register in your new state. Uh, if you're sort of only temporarily moved and you're, it's more like we could call it traveling, you know, I would vote absentee in the way that your state allows. All right, we're going to take a quick break and come back with more about voting in the digital age. Welcome back. So the voting we've been talking about is fairly old school, right? We're talking about mail-in ballots and relying on paper, actual paper, in 2020. So there have been a few attempts at modernizing the voting process in the U.S., but they largely haven't caught on. There tends to be this differing of opinions between technologists who want to modernize voting and the county officials who are ultimately responsible for deciding how we vote. There was also the disastrous use of an app that caused chaos and confusion at the Iowa Democratic Caucus earlier this year, and we did a Gadget Lab podcast on that. If you go back in the feed, I'm sure you can find that to listen to. But other countries outside of the U.S. do effectively use apps or online voting in their elections. So why can't we? Lily, what's your best response to that? Right. It feels like a pressing question because it's like, look, other countries do it. Also, we bank online. Also, we, you know, have our health information and portals online you know, what is the deal with the voting issue, right? But the really important difference to understand and why security researchers and election officials are really wary of, you know, modernizing the system in this way that you're describing uh, is the secret ballot, right? Like we have this uh, concept in U.S. voting that nobody is going to know who you voted for because the sanctity of the secret ballot is really important, right? And there's a really big difference between doing something totally secretly online, all digitally, where nobody can check what what happened, what you said, what was recorded, versus something like your bank account, where we think of it as being secret, but really, you know, your bank knows your transactions, your bank knows what your balance is, and you know. So that's two parties who both know and you know have both seen these numbers and can reconcile any differences. With voting, nobody else is supposed to know. So the problem that comes up is just like, if I vote on an app and I see on the screen that it's the vote I wanted to cast, how do I know as soon as that those packets of data leave my screen and go out into the world, how do I know that my vote was recorded, tallied in the way I think I submitted it, right? And so that's the big hurdle. How do other countries handle online voting? First of all, most of the countries are much, 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 much smaller than the US. So that's just like a thing to factor in. And then second of all, some of those systems, when they've been audited, have major security vulnerabilities. 
so just because there hasn't been a known mass incident doesn't mean one couldn't happen. And in fact, some countries have had, you know, vote tampering and manipulation. So that's why people are so wary about doing it in the U.S. And I think the researchers I have talked to, they say it's not impossible to devise a system that would be secure enough and transparent enough, but not too transparent because we want to maintain everyone's privacy, that, that it would be possible to do that. But it's just a much bigger lift than what we're imagining when we say like, oh, an app, oh, the blockchain. That, that's not the level that the project would need to be on in order to produce a system that would potentially work. Uh, one time I had a source compare it to the space race and to like, you know, NASA and landing a man on the moon, that it would need to be that level of government investment, community buy-in, like from the country, everyone behind it, everyone excited about it, uh, that level of expertise. Some people have said that's an exaggeration, but, uh, you know, my reporting has really borne it out that it's like, it is possible. We just need to imagine it on this whole other scale of investment than what we're currently thinking about. And I mean, really, you're not talking about one system. You're talking about dozens and dozens of systems, like at least one for each state. Uh, you're going to be talking about a mobile app for iOS, a mobile app for Android, a web version, possibly, you know, so that people who don't have smartphones can still log on to a computer and do it that way. And then that being built on top of the systems that we already have in place, in-person voting and mail-in voting, right? Yeah, Mike, that's such a great point because, you know, another thing that is really secret in U.S. voting is decentralized state-by-state -state control. There's no, you know, a big difference between my analogy to NASA and what would need to happen exactly as you're saying uh, would be an opt-out for states, the, you know, the opportunity to build something else. The federal government, you know, is not uh, allowed to come in and say, this is the system we're all going to use for voting. That is, you know, not in our constitution. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to sort of say it can't happen or not be hopeful. Like, that's really what I want to emphasize. It's, it's not to be a downer or be negative. It's just like, this is the reality of what it would take. And the thing about elections is, and this goes back to what we were saying about mail ballots, you can't have a situation where you don't realize that the election was tampered with. You know, it's so a, a researcher uh, I've spoken to a lot uh, compared it to the barking dog uh, model of security. You know, it's not that problems can never arise. It's that you need to have the dog barking telling you something went wrong. There's a problem. Somebody's here. You know, like that's that's what you really need. And that's really difficult to implement in digital systems. And this is where the, the tension crops up because it feels like people are saying, no, we just can't do this. And that's not really what they're saying, but they're saying you got to expand your mind about the reality of the difficulty. Lily, what are some of the most viable ideas or solutions you've heard around making voting digital and not only solving the complicated tech issues around it, 
but addressing equity issues that would inevitably emerge. Another reason this is so important is accessibility, right? One of the reasons this debate gets so heated is because it feels like some people are saying, nope, this just can't happen, even though it would be so incredibly helpful for so many people who have accessibility issues to voting, whether it's the physical, you know, barriers or that's, you know, work schedule issues or childcare, you know, all these things. Um, so it can, you know, feel like that's really being uh, ignored. And, I, you know, I think that's not the case. But, you know, to your point, it would need to be a system that has that accessibility piece for everyone, uh, hopefully meaning that there is sort of a lot more equity of opportunity in terms of who can vote and making sure everyone can vote. Uh, but then also, right, what is the system that will be secure and transparent enough without being overly transparent uh, to make this work. And I think, so two pieces, um, one, one concept is just the idea of monitoring from every angle, every software component, every piece, every line of code, however you want to think about it, there would need to be a mechanism to monitor for abnormal behavior, right? So that would be one way that you might be able to detect that something's going wrong. And then I think the other concept that holds a lot of promise uh, is there's a lot of new types of encryption and sort of uh, fields of study within encryption to be able to do mathematical calculations such as adding, such as tabulating, on data that never gets decrypted. So it's like it's locked in this thing that you can't read, but you can still add two pieces together and get a new total that maybe you also don't even know the total until the end or something. So that would be a way to know that everyone's vote was private, that nobody ever knew the whole time, you know, who voted for what, but that you can still work on the data and get a result. Because, right, that's always the issue you need to bridge. It's like, well, if it's secret, how do I count it, you know? Um, but yeah, there is there is not really an easy answer to like what's the promising thing. When a voting app is available and I go to the app store and download it, does Apple get 30% of my vote? <laughs> it sounds like they would want it from what I've heard. <laughs> um, but you do bring up another good point that another reason this is so difficult is that we would all be doing it on our own devices. And even if the sort of back-end system in the cloud or, you know, managed by your election officials, even if all of that was ultra-secure, another major hurdle is, like, what happens if there's malware on your device, you know? that That's really the reason that going to a polling place is, you know, superior in, in this security model than everybody just, you know, doing whatever or mailing your ballot to the, you know, the centralized counting, things like that. It, it, that's the reason we have the model we have right now is that if we all are just depending on our own devices, it's an additional layer of defense because it's like you need to defend the system in general and you also need to defend everybody's personal devices. All right. 2020 Paper ballots it is. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's daunting. But I want to point out, you guys, we already have like the coolest, most enduring, amazing technology, which is paper. 
Like it, it's not, I'm, this is my pitch. It's not, I get, I get a cut from the, the paper lobby. No, <laughs> but you know, I just, I really want to emphasize it's not old and outmoded. It's like totally amazing that this can work on the scale, you know, of the U S voting pool. Like it's awesome. So it's not all bad, you guys. And don't forget to vote. Just vote. Yeah. No matter what you vote. do, no matter how you do it, just vote. All right, let's take another quick break and then we're gonna come back with recommendations. Lily, I'm gonna go to you first. What's your recommendation? So there are other things in my life besides encouraging you to vote, but that's the main thing we're doing in this podcast. So my recommendation is also about how to get information on voting. Uh, if you need more assistance than what the wired.com guide can offer, there are a lot of sites that are offering sort of state-by-state -state breakdowns, you know, of uh, how to register, how to get your ballot by mail, or how to vote in person, all those things. Uh, there's vote.org, the secretaries of state uh, have a guide out. Uh, but the one I like the best is the U.S. Election Assistance Commission state-by-state -state guide. It breaks down everything. It has sort of the full gamut, I think, of things you might want to know. Uh, and you, it's just a drop-down menu where you put in your state and it'll spit out all the different relevant links. So that's my recommendation. And of course, uh, once again, additional recommendation to just vote in any way. Great. Thank you so much for that. Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, my recommendation is a book uh, that I just read. It's called Year of the Monkey, and it's a memoir by Patti Smith. Patti Smith, the uh, singer and um, poet and just all-around cultural badass. Um, she's written a few memoirs over the years. This one takes place entirely during the year 2016, and it is a combination of a travel log and a dream journal and just sort of her floating around in America and in Europe sort of living her internal life and I'm bringing it up this week because of course since it takes place during 2016 over the course of the book politics start to creep in and there is a really kind of fun narrative that you get to follow well fun in quotes i'm doing air quotes but uh it's this narrative creeps in about um america and about politics in america and about divisiveness and about toxicity uh and it's really incredible to read somebody who is um as can seem as d detached from daily life as patty smith seems in the book talk about these issues in 2016 but reading them now after we've already been through four years of this divisiveness and this toxicity so uh perspective is is the key word there it really puts things into perspective it's also just a fantastic read it came out about a year ago or i guess about nine months ago and i'm just getting to it now because the queue is long but uh, the pandemic has me reading more than ever so that's my recommendation year of the monkey by patty smith great is there is there a Patty Smith album you'd recommend listening to in the background while you read her book? Um, I would say Waves is a good one, uh, or of course Horses. I like Horses, Horses, the live reimagining of Horses. That's a good one. But uh, you know, it's also like it's kind of hard to read anything to her audio stuff because her albums, her music albums, are like poetry over rock music. So it's kind of like you have to 
turn that part of your brain off if you're going to be you have to listen to one or the other right right it's like yeah it's i think they should each be uh experienced individually but it's right. like when you put the book down then you keep the vibes going keep the groove going by t- right on an album you can just hang with patty all day <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like a terrible thing to do in these pandemic times oh, it sounds, sounds lovely quite great actually lauren what is your uh what is your recommendation well my recommendation um well, you could wear these whether you're reading a Patty Smith book or whether you're voting by mail. Um, it's a pair of pajamas. So my friend Chantel recently sent me a pair of pajamas unprompted. It was a lovely surprise. Uh, I think she got the sense I was stressed. Uh, and they're from Cozy Earth. And they're just incredible. They're, I, I feel so strongly about these pajamas. <laughs> I'm a little alarmed by how much I love these pajamas, but I love them so much. Uh, In particular, this is the long sleeve bamboo pajama set. They are expensive. They're normally $169. Wow. Very expensive pajamas. There is a Labor Day sale where they're going to be 20% off and you can get them for $135. Not sure how long that sale is going to be going on for. I feel like I'm shilling for the company. I'm not. I've never spoken to them. All I know <laughs> is that I really, really love these pajamas. They're um, this stretch knit fabric. They're really soft. Um, even if you kind of order up in size, they still fit really well and drape really nicely. Um, they're just, they, they're, they have good breathability, so they're not too hot while you're sleeping. Um, I may or may not still be wearing the pajama pants now. Not going to confirm, but I'm, I, I can't believe I feel so strongly about these pajamas, but I do. And I like good pajamas. Like I I have other pajama sets, but this is like, this is next level stuff. So cozy earth bamboo pajamas. If you can swing the cost because they are costly, I recommend them. And they're bamboo. And they're bamboo. Which is good for the planet because bamboo grows faster than any other plant. Better for the planet better for your sleeping. I feel like this is putting me to shame because I've really tapped into wearing like my rattiest, worst pajamas and clothes in the pandemic to just kind of like, I don't know, use them up or something like it, just get rid of them. But now I feel like maybe that's the wrong approach and I should be lounging in luxury. You know? <laughs> and it's not a terrible idea. If you're looking for a slightly less expensive pair of pajamas, I recommend Soma. Because I've had those for years, too. And then actually, my aunt sent me another pair of Soma pajamas recently. I don't know why everybody keeps sending me pajamas, but I'm not complaining about it. I really like this. But those are a little bit less expensive. I think you can find them on Amazon, too. Um, And then every so often, you know, you got to wear, like, the 2008 Beijing Olympics t-shirt that has armpit stains just because. now you're finally (laughs) speaking my language. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But that said... Good pajamas are also a good investment. So thanks to my friend for sending them. That was really, really nice. And um, check out <laughs> check out Cozy Earth. All right, that's our show for this week. Thank you, Lily, for joining us. Good to be with you guys. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, we'd love to hear from you. You can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth, and our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Bye for now. We'll be back next week. And don't forget to vote. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take podcast from Bloomberg News. 
Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.